I want to speak with you today about your heart. Your heart. The very core of who you are, the actual you. You are not your limbs. You are not your arms, your toes. You are not a blood pump. That's not your heart. Your heart is the true you that came alive when God breathed into man. And today I want to I make the case that everything in your life, everything actually flows from your heart. Your heart determines how you evaluate everything. Your heart determines how you experience everything. Your heart determines what you like, what you love. Your heart determines everything. Your relational appetites springs from your heart. What you allow and what you don't allow springs from your heart. What you choose to pursue after and what you choose to leave behind, all of it springs from your heart. You see, the two greatest driving forces of human nature are pain and pleasure. Avoiding pain and gaining pleasure are the things people strive to achieve and maintain throughout their lives. They, they plan their lives around these two issues of pain and pleasure. Everything we do, we do for those reasons, those two reasons. That's why people work hard toward a more comfortable and convenient life because of the pleasure that comfort promises, of course. That is why people are fearful of breaking the law because of their fear of the consequences that might come, the pain that might come. So you drive the speed limit because you don't like pain. You get up and you work every day, five, nine to five, almost said five to nine. Why? Because you enjoy the pleasure that provision brings and the convenience brings. But today I would like us to look deeper into what allows us to experience either this pleasure and this pain or this pleasure and this displeasure. Let me rather say it that way. What allows you to enjoy something and what causes you to be displeased with something? So I want to submit to you that the state of a person's heart determines what he finds to be pleasant and what he finds to be abhorrent. My heart determines what I find to be desirable and what I find to be detestable. The state of my heart determines the appetites I have in life. The person whose heart is dark and whose heart is hardened with sin will find pleasure in doing evil things. The person whose heart is filled with God's light, he will find pleasure and it's a delight to be in the house of the Lord. It's a delight to hear the word of God, no matter how hard. It's a delight to worship God. You see, the state of your heart determines what brings joy to you, what you enjoy, what you find pleasure in, and what you detest and despise. You see, the person whose heart is dark and hardened with sin will be tormented by the idea of an hour Bible study. Like, ah, oh, oh, Lord Jesus, no. He's tormented by the idea of, hey, everybody, let's get together and sing hymns together. Like, uh, 
You want to go out and paint the town red? Oh, yeah. Why? A person's heart determines their responses to these ideas and concepts and actions. So the person whose heart is dark and hardened, ah, they're tormented by participating in things of God. While the person whose heart is filled with God's light, that person's tormented by something else. The idea of breaking intimacy with God jars them. Have you ever, have you ever caught yourself considering doing something that would absolutely break intimacy with God? And the fear of the Lord is when you go, oh, no. Or the fear of the Lord is when you've been involved with something and God puts your oven, God puts your, your conscience in an oven. You're just sweating and you just, this is the fear of the Lord working through your life. Why? Because you have a God-fearing heart. Your heart determines all things. Have you ever wondered how people can just live in open sin and it doesn't bother them at all? Have you ever considered that? Why is that? It's a heart issue. It's a heart issue. It's never a situation issue. It's not your situation that holds you. It's your heart that loves darkness rather than light. So what brings one person great pleasure is the same thing that can bring another person great torment. But the difference is the state of their hearts. In Luke chapter 6, verse 45, the Bible says, The good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good. In other words, the good treasure in a person's heart brings things forth in his life that is good before God. And the evil man, out of the evil treasures in his heart, brings forth what is evil. It all comes from the heart. And then he says, for the mouth speaks from which fills the heart. So if you want to know what's a person's heart's filled with, listen to their mouth. If you want to know what your heart's filled with, listen to your mouth. So here Jesus obviously clarifies that your heart is a depository for good and evil. Your heart is a container, and within it, there is either good, it's filled with good, or it's filled with evil, and whatever it's filled with, so flows forth your life, because it determines your appetites. It determines your loves. It determines what you despise. So our heart is really the issue. This is the issue. I have children. And if there's disobedience or disrespect, it's a heart issue. If there's a finding pleasure in what is good, it's a heart issue. So you can, you can test a person's heart, especially those that belong to you, your children, your household. You can see where a person's heart is by the appetites that they have for the things in this world, the things of God. Proverbs 4 verse 23 says, what, uh, uh, Watch over your heart with all diligence. Watch over that heart of yours. Diligently. Why? Because from it flows the springs of life. From it flow the springs of life. I've always wondered how it is, having uh, grown up on a farm in northern South Africa, and by the way, I got my tractor yesterday, all excited. 
<clears throat> Got to mow that lawn. But I always wondered, like when I was in Africa, I used to have these friends that literally lived in mud huts. I remember my buddy, Tinas, do you remember, Mom? Lived in a mud hut. And uh, basically carried water there and made fire, and this is how they lived. Now, they didn't just make it out of mud. They actually make it out of cow dung and mud mixed. And they make the, you know? Yeah. And uh, little Tinas and I, we used to play all day long with a stick and a rock. <laughs> and little Tinas was the happiest kid you've ever met in your life. I kid you not. Never seen Tinas not have a wonderful day. Intrigued by everything and I'm wondering how people with so little can enjoy all of what they have. And then you look at kids today in the West, and you think of how can they not enjoy any of all that they have? They have so much, cannot enjoy any of it. They walk around angry. They walk around with a bad attitude. They walk around with, you know, angry. And then you have another kid with nothing. And you think, why is he so grateful when I, when I share my gum with him? It's like a big deal. <laughs> Right? It's a heart issue. It's a heart issue. Things in this world, when we start loving it, pursuing it, pleasure, 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 our hearts, that container becomes filled and contaminated with the things of this world and the pride of life. I want, I want, I want, I want, I want to be, I want to be, I want to be, I want to get, I want to get, I want to get. More, 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 more. Nothing is ever enough. And everything is mine. And why can't I also have? And these things really actually destroy us to the point where we no longer can be satisfied with anything. Every one of us have a capacity for pleasure. And when we filled with it, when that capacity for pleasure is filled, then, then what do you do? Then where do we go? And so it's very important for us to understand, instead of going after pleasure, go after productivity, because when you are productive, you are functioning how God created for you to function, and in it, there's fulfillment and joy. The person who finds meaning in life is the person who has great responsibilities. The pe person who finds no meaning in life is the person that's only got candy thrown at him all day long, and he's got no, no responsibility. And I found that, don't you feel the same way? When you've completed a task and you've done it well, how do you feel? Of course. If you've lazed around for days on end doing absolutely nothing and accomplishing nothing, you'll end up going like, what's the meaning of life? I don't know. <laughs> because all of these things is us practicing a certain heart attitude toward God, you practicing your heart toward God. You're practicing a heart attitude toward leaders, toward those that God has placed over you, toward your parents. You're practicing a heart attitude. So Proverbs 4.23 says, watch over your heart with all diligence. Watch how you practice your heart. For from it flow the springs of life. If your heart is the fountain from which all of your life is determined, and we are told to watch over this heart of ours, then we have to ask the question, what are we talking about when we talk about a heart? 
what is my heart? Where is my heart? Until I find it, how can I protect it? What am I supposed to protect in order to protect my heart? Well, Thomas Watson wrote this. He said, the heart is taken diversely in scriptures. What he's saying is that when, when the scripture talks about the heart, it talks about multiple aspects within you. He says, the heart is taken diversely in scriptures, sometimes referring to the mind, Proverbs 10, 8, sometimes referring to the conscience, 1 John 3, 20, and sometimes the will, and other times affections, Psalm 119, 36. So according to Thomas Watson, he points out that the Bible sees the heart to be the mind, the conscience, the will, and the affections. So if you're going to be protecting and guarding your heart, you have to guard your mind, your conscience, your will, and your affections. Trust me, allowing your affections to grow to or in a direction it may not grow into, that God does not give, give it permission to grow into, is you not protecting your heart. You know, porn is you not protecting your heart, <laughs> right? <laughs> Loving filthy jokes is you not protecting your heart. So we have to protect our mind, our conscience, our will, and our affections. A.W. Pink answers the question this way. The heart is the seat of man's thoughts, man's affections, and his will. Basically the same. So to circle back to Proverbs 4.23, here the Bible declares, because the heart is the birthplace, therefore, of thoughts, of ideas, of confidence, of courage, of conviction, of conscience, of, of, of drive, of desire, affection, and emotion, because all these aspects within your life flows from the heart because it is the birthplace. The heart is the birthplace of all of these that makes the person's life. And the heart, above all else, therefore needs to be kept guarded and protected. And that is why we have to watch it. Watch over our hearts. Watch over that garden that God has given you. Keep it with all diligence. Then we have to ask the question, okay, well, what does it mean to watch over my mind, my affections, my will, my thoughts, my desire, my conscience. What does it mean to watch over that? Well, A.W. Pink, again, <clears throat> if you don't read him, you really should. The man is tremendously articulate. He says we are to keep the imagination from vanity. We have to keep the understanding from error. We have to keep the will from perverseness, wanting perverseness. We have to keep the conscience from guilt. And we have to keep the affections from being inordinate. We have to keep it from being set on evil objects. We have to keep the mind from being employed on worthless or vile subjects. So basically, he says this is the work to which God has called us when he said, watch of your heart. Guard your heart. The work that God has called us in guarding is to keep our imagination from vanity, to keep our understanding from error, to keep our will 
from wanting perverseness, from keeping our conscience from guilt, being guilt-ridden, from keeping our affections from being inordinate and keeping our mind from worthless and vile subjects. Hollywood. So the Bible makes many life-defining statements about the heart of man. Over and over, the Bible talks about heart. And I'm sure you've experienced this. The moment you buy a certain car, you're driving down the street and you go like, why does everybody drive my car? <laughs> now suddenly you see the same car everywhere. The same thing is true for scriptures. You know, when you find in the scriptures, uh, you find something that, wow, God talks about it a lot. You open up your Bible and he's now addressing, addressing the heart over and over and over again. So I wanted to walk through a few scriptures regarding the heart and just see what the Bible says, and then um, we'll draw some conclusions. First, Matthew 5, verse 8. It says, blessed are the pure in heart. Those who are pure in heart. They haven't defiled their imaginations. They haven't defiled their, their understanding. Is not, is not filled with error. Their will isn't perverse, always wanting the wrong. Their conscience isn't guilt-ridden. Their affections aren't set on vile objects, and their mind isn't employed, employing all the worthless and the vile subjects. In other words, blessed is this person. They shall see God. They shall see God. Nobody is blind as the blind. <laughs> And you cannot find God even in reading scriptures if your heart is blind. Why do you think God has to give us a brand new heart? Because to the unregenerate man, even the things of God is, are foolish. They read it and it's foolishness to them. But then when God gives you a brand new heart, suddenly it's the precious pearl of great price. Psalm 34, verse 18 says, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Now think of this. The Lord is near to the one whose imagination of themselves is in line with Scripture regarding them. While the unregenerate person imagines themselves, they have so much vanity in their imagination. They think so, much, so highly of themselves. You go to Starbucks... You are beautiful. <laughs> Doesn't matter where you go. Everybody's just talking about just how fantastic you really are. And then you go to scriptures and you, and you, and you study the to man's total depravity. You go like, oh, okay, my imagination of who I am needs to change. I love how Charles Spurgeon says, if any man thinks ill of you, if any man thinks ill of me, don't be angry at him because you are much worse than what he even imagines. So don't be angry. Don't be angry. Stop pretending like you're much better than everybody thinks who thinks bad of you. <laughs> nope. You don't know the beginning, sir. <laughs> Stand in line. Other people think worse things and they're more accurate than you are. So the, so the Bible says the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. In other words, the person whose imagination sees himself for who he is as the Bible states he is. The person with a broken, a broken heart is the one whose understanding regarding himself and his sinful nature and actions aren't in error, but are in fact truthful. He's, his conscience is guilt-ridden, and he knows. 
He needs Christ. This man who's mourning, the broken heart mourns. He's mourning not the fact that his girlfriend left him. He's mourning of the fact that he's lost his innocence before God. That's why the Bible says, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted, to those who mourn their own sin. He saves those who are crushed in spirit. That means God is close to the repentant. God is close to the repentant heart, the heart that repents. Proverbs 17.22 says, A joyful heart is good medicine, but a broken spirit dries up the bones. Here we see that the state of a man's heart affects him physically. His health is affected by the state of his heart. Matthew 15, 18, and 20 says, But the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those defile the man. In other words, all those, those vile things you wish for, hope for, dream of, and imagine to one day have, those things are what defiles you. Verse 19, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witnesses, slander. These are the things which defile the man, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile the man. Evidently, all evil deeds, all injustices, and every ungodly action stems from a compromised and a crooked heart. Again, all the evil that we experience in life, for most part, flows from our hearts. James chapter five, uh, 4, verse 8 says, Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Then He says this, Cleanse your, hearts, you, uh, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your heart, you double-minded. The double-minded man has, a, has an impure heart. There's an impurity because they always have two thoughts. Always learning, always learning, never attaining. They're always learning but never getting there. Purify your hearts, you're double-minded. Psalm 112 verse 7 says, he will not fear evil things. His heart is steadfast, trusting in the Lord. It says if a person's heart is steadfastly trusting in the Lord, he will not suffer anxiety. He will not suffer fears. He will not, he will not fear bad news. It doesn't say he won't receive bad news. He says he won't fear it when he gets it. Why? Because his heart is steadfast, trusting in the Lord. We have to. Command our hearts, family. Command your heart. What does that mean? Command your thoughts what to think. Command your affections who, to, who and what to love. Refuse your affections to love that which God has forbidden, that which is not yours. Look yourself in the mirror and say, Heart, you will not love that. You will hate it instead. Command your heart. That's how you guard your heart. People, people think guarding their heart is wishing. No, it's commanding. I wish I had an appetite for the Lord. I wish I didn't. Oh, gee, I just really wish I, I don't have these imaginations about another woman. I wish I didn't have these no, 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 command yourself. <laughs> like, 
The heart of the prophet subject to the prophet. Right? That's what the Bible says. You tell your heart what it's not going to do. How many of you have ever had an emotional breakdown after, the, off to your second birthday? Yeah. You were, in other words, you were older and you, already, and you had an emotional breakdown at some point. You were just like feeling like you just want sit to sit in a heap in a corner and just throw a tantrum. No? Nobody? All right. <laughs> Sometimes you just feel like um, throwing all your toys out of your, out of the, what's that little thing that babies sleep? What's that? Crib. Yeah, you just want to throw all your toys out there. You're just angry, you're feeling sorry for yourself. But really, there were times like that that you have to realize anyone who's led by his feelings are absolutely not led by the Spirit. You cannot be led by your feelings and the Spirit at the same time. Because everything the Spirit tells you to do is contrary to what you feel like doing. If somebody slaps you, what do you feel like doing to that person? Slap him back. What does the Spirit tell you to do? Turn the other cheek. If somebody tells you to walk a mile, what do you feel like telling that person where to go? <laughs> That's what my feelings tell me to tell that person. But the Spirit tells me to walk another mile. When I have an enemy, what do I feel like doing to my enemy? Conquer him. What is the Bible? What does the Spirit tells me to do? Yeah, pray for him. Right? And so you cannot be led by the, by the feeling, your feelings, your heart, because your heart's not just made out of your feelings, just understand. But it's not without feeling. You cannot be following those feelings on a daily basis and think that you are being led by the Spirit. And those who find God speaking to him outside of scriptures oftentimes fall into that trap because they confuse how they feel with what God is saying because they oftentimes make how they feel God's voice. That is a trap. So the state of your heart is an absolute game changer in your life. You have to guard your heart if you want to have a well-ordered life. Every person whose life is in disarray is because all of that craziness stems from the state of their heart. And you have to first... Order, well, order your heart before your life's going to come back into order. So what people do is their hearts are in a complete mess. So their marriage falls apart. The children run away. They lose their job. They go like, you know what? I'm just going to move. I want to be away. I can't stand everything that's going on here. I'm going to move. And so they move to the other side of the country with the same problem, that, the same root that caused everything. Now they just plant it somewhere else. It's like, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move to Hawaii. Let's see. Let's make it work out here. No, it ain't going to work out anywhere because you just showed up, right? God has called us to bring order to the chaos we find ourselves in. And the first thing you have to do to bring order to the chaos that you find 
is you have to go to your heart and guard it, order it, make the priorities of your heart, re realign your heart's priorities, making sure that you are not putting another God before Him, the Creator. How do you do that? By having a priority above Him. So the study of your heart is absolute game changer in your life. It's where you start in order to reorder your life. It will determine what you love. It will determine what you hate. The state of your heart determines what you love and what you hate. The state of your heart determines what you desire and what you despise. The state of your heart will, de will determine what you give yourself to and what you withdraw yourself from. Let me just say that again. The state of your heart determines what you give yourself to and what you draw withdraw yourself from or what you protect yourself from. Now, we can talk about that for the rest of this week, but let's just move on because <laughs> I think that I know that uh, you're an intelligent bunch and you can filter that through every part of your life. What are you reading? Like, who are you listening to? This is how we listen to, watch this. We listen to people this way. Well, I really like those people. So I'm going to forgive them for more than these people I don't like. Guess what? You are not a principled individual. You're personality driven. We don't, we don't believe something because a person we like told us that. And we don't reject something because the person we don't like told us that. We believe something because the Bible says it's true or the, we don't believe it because the Bible says it's not true. The whole world today, it's in, our, it's in the air we breathe, in our culture. We no longer believe somebody because they're right or wrong. We don't care about evidence. We care if they're male or female. No, it's got to be right because it's that gender. <laughs> Follow what I'm saying? Where's the evidence? Where's the truth? Where's the facts? And when you want to know if something is right or wrong, you go straight to the Word of God and you believe that. And you command your heart to not be prejudiced. Don't prejudge based on how you like people or dislike them, right? So what are the causes of a hardened heart? What are the causes? First, doubt hardens your heart. Doubting the Word of God hardens your heart. And as the shepherd of this church, uh, I make no apology for this. You may not doubt Scripture. Uh, what we tend to do is we want to we put more stake in the, ground, uh, stake in, in the person who, who's possibly a great speaker or a great teacher online or a, you know, he's a big personality guy or whatever. You don't put stake in stuff like that. You don't believe that even though you don't see it in Scripture. You doubt that no matter how entertaining it is. You doubt that no matter how hopeful it is. Because the way people, people win you over is by blowing smoke at you. People love having their ears tickled. Not you. You're like, I'm interested in what the Bible says. Thanks, Joel. I'm, I'm, I'm good. I'll be okay. <laughs> you promised me 
I'm going to get that car. I've been waiting 15 years. It's okay. That car is out of date now. Now I need to believe for another car again. And I didn't even get the first one I believed for. Unbelievable. <laughs> I mean, I, I, the last car I, I sowed a seat for was a Fiat. And who even drives a Fiat these days? <laughs> Now people are believing for Cybertrucks, and I'm still waiting for my Fiat. <laughs> I, want, I want my seat back. <laughs> you may not doubt the scriptures. They're inerrant. They're infallible. It is God's word. Doubt me, doubt everybody else, but you may not doubt the scripture. Mark 8, verse 17, the Bible says, aware, aware of their discussion. Jesus asked them, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Can you see that? They're talking about having no bread. They're following Jesus and they're saying, we got no food. Jesus said, why are your hearts, why are your hearts so hard? I must be honest, if that happened to you and me, we'd be going like, Jesus, no, 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 we're just, we're just wondering where the bread is, where we're going to get bread. That's all. We're starting to get hungry. Jesus, stop the judgment. <laughs> They're simply walking down the street going like, what? You know, what are we going to do for food? Why are you talking about no bread? Why are your heart so hard? <laughs> Verse 18. He didn't do it like that, okay? I'm imagining it. He says to them, do you have eyes but fail to see? Do you have ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember? Your hearts are hard. That's why you don't remember. Can you see what he's saying? He says, are your hearts hard? He says, you're not remembering, do you? A person with a hardened heart does not remember. What don't they remember? They don't remember all the things God already brought them through. They've forgotten that God has brought them through one, two, three, a thousand things, a million things. And so now they get to the next thing and they go like, oh, what am I going to do? God says, what's wrong with you? You forget. You could never have gotten here unless I performed miracle after miracle after miracle for you. And now you're wondering what's going to happen next. I'm still standing. I'm still with you. Stop living in doubt, which is Proof that your heart is hardened. And I can tell you, give you another proof, Jesus said, your heart's hardened because you keep forgetting how I've always provided for you. It's, he says it right there. He says, are your hearts hardened? Verse 18. Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember when I broke the five loaves and the five, uh, for the 5,000? How many bucketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for 4,000, how many baskets or basketfuls of pieces did, I pick, did you pick up? They answered, seven. He said to them, you do, do you still not understand? See, here we have Jesus clearly articulating the conditions of a hardened heart. And he says the condition, he says the hardened heart is this way. The hardened heart has an inability to see the truth. Remember, he says you have eyes, but you can't see. You see, the hardened heart does not see the truth. The hardened heart sees the argument. 
Let me say that again. The hardened heart opens up the scriptures and does not see the truth in it, but sees the argument. And I always tell people, I can answer your question. I cannot answer your, argue, your, your, your argument. Now, if we want to talk about something, that's fine. If you have questions, that's great. But if you're contentious, who's going to answer a contentious individual? Because it's a heart issue. It's not an understanding issue. Nothing you say, no matter how sufficiently the person's question is, is answered, it doesn't answer because it's not, the problem is not here. The problem is there. They can look at the scripture and consistently argue with a sufficient answer. Because it's a heart issue, not a mind issue. He's, Jesus was saying here that the, the hardened heart has an inability to hear the truth, see the truth, and to remember, and to remember. The hardened heart doesn't remember God's past goodness. It remembers only past pains and past failures and future fears. And so the disciples saw with their own eyes how Jesus multiplied the fish and the loaves. And they trivialized the past event to the point where, they, where it was forgotten. They forgot how powerful, able, and willing Jesus was to miraculously feed them. And this caused them to doubt that he could feed them. So what I want to ask you is, how, did I know that, how do I know I'm in danger of a hardened heart due to doubting God and he, as his disciples? Did? So, so in other words, how do, I, how do I know if I'm in the same shoes, same place those disciples were? when Jesus accused them of having a hardened heart because they did not remember him. Well, too often we forget and lose sight of how God has blessed us in the past. Think about some of the things that God has brought you through. Think of it right now. And don't forget that it was God that sent that person. It is God that revealed that problem. It was by the wisdom of God that the doctors were able to do that for you. Think through your past life. You shouldn't have been here. None of us should have been here. The humble heart goes, yeah, none of us should have been here. Thank God. The blind and the deaf and the, and the, and the heartless goes, yeah, I shouldn't be. I should be much further. That's right. <laughs> I'm actually much greater than where I'm at. <laughs> it's like the wife asks the husband, where would, I, where would you be without me? Where would you be without me? He goes, in the Garden of Eden? <laughs> But now look at where I'm at. <laughs> we have allowed our hearts to harden toward God in doubt when we struggle to trust God for our current needs, when we struggle to trust God that He would care for us in the future. We know He cares for the birds. We know He cares for the fields and the lilies in the field, but, but not for me. And we struggle to trust God that He will care for us today and tomorrow. We do so because we've forgotten how He has provided for us in the past, and that is a doubting heart. And that doubt 
constantly living in fear as to what the future holds is doubting God. Let me say that again. Constantly living in fear for what the future holds is doubting God. Don't ever say, I'm not going to have children. I'm not going to bring children into this horrible world. Are you kidding me? God is about to deal with this horrible world, and he, and he could use your children if you raise them right. Because the world is dark, therefore you have to have ten children and raise them godly. Right? God says, go ahead, be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth. <laughs> it's like, well, no, we're not going to do that one because it's really bad today. <laughs> the world's really bad. <laughs> God was like, yeah, when I said that, I didn't really realize it was going to be that bad. <laughs> I didn't think that far ahead. So we lose sight and we forget what God brought us out of, like the children of Israel when they were in the desert. And then we always start murmuring and we're complaining about where we are. But we've allowed our hearts to harden toward God in doubt when we struggle to trust Him. Just trust God. And I can tell you one of the reasons people struggle to trust God is because, and here I go again, they do not understand what it means that God is sovereign. And they refuse to hear the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. They just don't like it. Because they tag names to it and they dismiss the names. Do you follow what I'm saying? They put a name to a Bible doctrine, an ism, and then they go like, yeah, I don't like that guy. No, 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 forget that. So we have to make sure that we don't doubt God. And it's easy to trust Him in victory, in failure, in pleasure, and in pain when you know that He is sovereign and that He promised all things work together for the good to those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. Those who are called according to His purpose, He will make these things work out. And He couldn't have made that promise. Was He not sovereign over both good and evil? Because when evil things happen to you, you go, oh, well, God's going to work all things out together for the good. Well, yeah, guess what? Ha, you believe in the sovereignty of God. Because how could, if God, wasn't in, if God wasn't ordaining and in control of even the evil that happens, not that He births fresh evil, but He allows evil to crucify Christ. He allowed it because it was part of His plan. And I'm just saying that if you believe in the sovereignty of God, why fear the future? You only fear the future and you don't trust God for the present because you don't understand the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. Or you don't want to believe it, one of the two. So the first is doubt hardens the heart. Number two, sin hardens the heart. Sin is what hardens my heart. It's what hardens your heart. Nothing hardens a person's heart quicker than unrepentant sin. If we do not confess our sins, they will have a cumulative and desensitizing effect on our conscience. This is what the Bible calls a seared conscience in 1 Timothy 4, verse 1 and 2. Let's read it. But the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times... Let me just quickly say. But the Spirit explicitly says that in, in later times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. All right, so there are deceiving spirits. In other words, spirits that teach contrary to actual scriptures. And here, Paul is speaking to Timothy, and he's calling these spirits... 
demons that have doctrines. They are teaching contrary to the Bible. How do we know we have the right books of the Old Testament? Because Jesus taught out of those books. That's how we know. He taught those books. He opened them. He taught right out of the Septuagint, which we still have. And therefore, we know if Jesus saw them as Scripture, we see them as Scripture. Right? Good enough for Christ, good enough for me. And so here Paul is saying, but the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times, some will fall away from the faith. Wow! Paying attention, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons, doctrines that are not scriptural. How by means of the hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own consciences as with a branding iron. So how do I know if I have, a, if I have hardened my own heart? How do I know that I have hardened my own heart? Well, a seared conscience is a hardened heart. It is an extreme hardening of the heart. Like when you sear the flesh, and now, now the feeling is gone, in the same way when I've hardened and hardened and hardened and hardened, there's so much callous going on, callousness going on, there's no more feeling, I have seared my conscience. And if I feel no guilt for willingly violating scriptures, of course, then I can be sure that I have seared my conscience. Let me say that again. If I feel no guilt for willingly violating a scripture, if I feel no guilt for willingly violating a scripture, I have seared my conscience. That's how I know that. So how do I know I'm in danger of having a seared conscience? In 2 Timothy 4 verse 2, again, Paul is speaking to Timothy and he says, Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort for the, for the purpose of instructing. Okay, so how do I know I'm in danger of having a seared conscience? Well, when the Word of God can no longer exhort me, my conscience is seared. When the Word of God can no longer rebuke me, I am no longer rebukable because I know better. My conscience is seared. When the Word of God no longer reproves me or reprimands, that's a more, more understandable term. When the Word of God no longer, no longer reprimands me, then I'm in danger of having this seared conscience. So the conclusion is here, in a nutshell. Watch this. I have a weak conscience when I feel guilty for things I'm not supposed to. I drop my Bible. I had righteous anger. The Bible says, be angry and sin not. When the Word of God, I have a weak conscience when I'm guilty for stuff I'm not supposed to be, feel guilty over. Like, f for the longest time, I could never play cards. It's from the devil. Wasn't allowed to dance. It's from the devil. I mean, dancing became such a big sin amongst the Baptists. You know that, right? Dancing is like a complete taboo. Uh, how many of you grew up believing dancing is a sin? Yeah? Han. <laughs> Let's pray for Han, everybody. 
<laughs> oh, dancing is not a sin. It depends on what dancing leads to, right? Now that becomes a sin, right? It's like, <laughs> maybe kind of like, what kind of dancing are you doing? <laughs> That's the question you have to answer. But dancing is like, it's like anything else, you know? <laughs> um, you know, anything can become a sin if you, if you abuse it. Uh, I heard some Baptists saying, man, we believe we were so strict on dancing. Man, uh, yeah, w- people weren't even allowed to have sex because it led to dancing. <laughs> dancing was the issue. No, 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 it's what it leads to. That's the issue. Don't put the cart before the horse. So my point here is that I have a weak conscience when I feel guilty for things I'm not supposed to feel guilty for. I have a seared conscience when I do not feel guilty for willingly disobeying a scripture. I have a clear conscience when I have confidence before God. Hebrews 10.22 says, Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings. Hebrews 10, 35 and 36 says, So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to preserve, you need to persevere, excuse me, so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what He has promised. So I have a hardened heart if I'm unteachable. I cannot be taught. This is something we talk to our children about all the time. Are you teachable? Are you moldable? Can you be taught? That's why it's important for us to have our children serve under other people. Because, you know, I, I have a belt. <laughs> but when, he, when somebody serves here, when, when my son serves here and he's in the department, and you know, um, he needs to willingly serve. He needs to be teachable. He needs to be moldable and learn. Am I teachable? For most part, biggest issue is, can you open up the Bible and say, Lord, I've been wrong. I see what you are saying, and I repent. I have a hardened heart if I am stubborn, if I am stubborn, if I cannot be led by those God has called called to be over me. I have a hardened heart if I'm callous. In other words, I do not want to repent for sins. I have a hardened heart if I have no appetite for the truth of Scripture. I have a hardened heart if I'm angry at anybody who questions my walk with God. If somebody comes to me and says, are you sure you're right with God? My brother, that takes a lot of courage for you to come and ask me and confront me. Thank you for asking or even caring. But in today's, you know, culture, it's like (laughs) you can't even ask somebody um, are you sure things are good between you and the Lord? And they're like, Jesus and I are like this, okay? I mean, they'll just flare up. I prayed the prayer in 1964. <laughs> you want to tell me I'm not saved? Just asking, because Paul said, test yourselves, and I'm just asking you to test yourself. I have a hardened heart if my desire for other things are amplified in comparison to my desire for the things of the Word. I have a hardened heart if I'm caught up in the worries and anxieties of this world 
its fragile state, which it is, its crookedness, which it is, its politics, which are crooked. Don't get caught up in the worries. Of, I'm not saying don't have, don't have truth regarding stuff and opinions regarding stuff. Don't get caught up in making those things um, uh, becoming known for that's all I can talk about. I can't ever talk about scriptures. Let people know you to be the person that talks more about the Lord than anything else in your life. Right? Don't you want to be known as a person who fears the Lord? Don't you want to be known as a person of faith? Don't you want to be known as a person of the Word? Don't you want to be known as a person of prayer? So how do I deal with a hardened heart? And we'll close here. How do I deal with a hardened heart? We first have to admit that we have allowed our hearts to be hardened either by sin or by doubt. One of the two. Sin or doubt. Until I admit something, what can I repent for? Admission is the first step toward repentance. And then acknowledging the problem of a hardened heart. It's one thing to say, yeah, my heart is hard, but it's not a big problem. No, it's a big problem. We can follow what we see David do when his heart was hardened. Psalm 139, verse 23 and 24, he says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Search me, God, and know my heart. That's how we ought to read the Bible. Search me, O God, and know my heart. So this week, when you open up the Word of God, pray that prayer before you start reading because you will find one thing. It's not you searching out Scriptures. It's the Scriptures searching you out. The Bible's reading you. And the Bible's pointing out things regarding you and your heart and your mind, your imagination, your desires. He says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. And see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. In 1 John 1 verse 9, it says, If we confess our sins, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let's close our eyes and let's ask the Lord to reveal to us, to search our hearts and point out to us that which we have to forgive, we have to repent for. Say, so, Father God, show me where I need to turn. Show me what needs to be corrected. Things I need to repent from. Reveal them to me now, I pray. And I'll take a moment and repent. Take a moment and repent before the Lord. First John 1 verse 9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let's just raise our hands for a moment.
And Lord, I just thank you for every person here, and I thank you, Lord, that they will receive and that they will experience the forgiveness that now flows through them, that they will know that in Christ they are washed clean. In Christ, every single sin in their life, including unbelief, the sin of unbelief, is removed from them in Jesus' mighty name, and they stand cleansed before the Father. They stand before God in the same state as Christ is sinless. Say, so thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Amen. 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 Let's give the Lord a praise offering. Thank you, Lord, for your word.